This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. As the tensions between Russia and the U.S. over Ukraine continue, the Russian government says it has pulled back some of its troops surrounding Ukraine, but the U.S. and its NATO allies say they want proof. President Joe Biden has threatened action against Russia in the event of an invasion of Ukraine. And the White House this week released a statement in support of Ukraine that said in part, quote, President Biden made clear that the United States would respond swiftly and decisively together with its allies and partners to any further Russian aggression against Ukraine. Meanwhile, in Afghanistan, where mass starvation is so rampant that Afghan families are selling off their children and their organs to stave off death, the Biden administration has decided to seize half of a $7 billion fund from the Afghan Central Bank for families of victims of the September 11, 2001 attacks carried out by Saudi Arabian terrorists. Joining me to assess Biden's posturing on Russia and Afghanistan is Kevin Martin of Peace Action and the Peace Action Education Fund. Welcome to the program, Kevin. Glad to be with you. Let's first start with Russia. What do you think Biden means when he promises swift action against Russia? I don't know that he has a lot of tools. And rather than trying to read Biden's mind, I think we ought to look at this as a potential opportunity, which you know maybe sounds uh, unusual or trying to do some kind of a mental jujitsu. And I, I, I'm not trying to read Putin's mind either, but. Um, there's a lot of the background of, of post-Cold War triumphalism by the U.S. and the West in terms of humiliating Russia, etc. And I think the U.S. and Russia have a lot of interest that they could use as an off-ramp for this crisis that would also benefit the people of Ukraine. Nuclear weapons, both the U.S. and Russia and Ukraine and everyone in Europe has an interest in uh, reducing nuclear weapons in the region. Working together to solve climate change, which is a horrible climate catastrophe is really a better word, um, having a, a severe effects on Russia, including, you know, the thawing of the, of the permafrost in Siberia. Uh, working together to resolve the pandemic, um, working together to uh, address uh, uh, violent extremism, etc. Um, I think all of those things could be off-ramps that could benefit not just this current crisis, but overall peace and uh, security and stability and the environment for, for people so that those could be really constructive good. ways out of the crisis if, if Biden was surrounded by progressive advisors those were the things they could be telling him yeah if he asked me that's that's what I would tell him and and of course my, my job and others who are activists that is our job to tell them uh, that we need to de-escalate and it's been frightening to me to see how the mainstream press has been you know, so whipping up, you know, war fever. And it looks like, hopefully it will be for naught. And it looks like maybe Russia is going to be pulling back troops. And then there are other ways to address security in the region. There's no reason that Ukraine should even be considering joining NATO. And I don't think most Ukrainians even want that. But there are other ways to address uh, security through uh, the OSCE. Um, and also through reviving an old idea about common security, not just in Europe, but Eurasia. And it's a, a ripe time to be talking about all of those things. And why not turn the crisis into an opportunity? 
So one of the issues is that Russia has invaded Ukraine before. We've come close to seeing Russia have this sort of invasion before and Russia's pulled back. The West and NATO are very, um, you know, have this war of words with Russia. Ultimately, though, Russia has leverage. Russia controls energy reserves, for example, that Europe relies on. And we're seeing Biden now warn Russia that it would be absolutely the worst thing in the world if Russia were to use that leverage. Um, it seems as though there's a lot of talk from the West, but they don't have that much leverage over Russia and Putin. And there also seems to be this um, tendency to overblow Russia's or exaggerate um, Russia's uh, positioning in the West and, 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 its, and, and the threats to, to Europe. But is that all part of keeping NATO relevant? Because NATO was founded as an, as an entity to, to um, keep the Cold War in check, to keep the former Soviet Union in check. And there's lots of questions about why NATO even exists anymore. Well, and peace action is part of something called the No to NATO Network, which does advocate abolishing NATO with our European peace colleague. And I think that the way that, that you might look at this is nobody necessarily has to be a fan of Vladimir Putin. He is a nationalist concerned about his country's security and future. And he has a relatively weak hand. He only has a few cards to play, but he plays them fairly well. And you know, Biden can bluster about more sanctions or you know, more, sending more weapons to Ukraine. I'm glad that so far Congress has yet to approve a proposed half billion dollars more of weapon sales to Ukraine. That's just putting out the fire with gasoline. We've already sent $650 million worth of weapons to Ukraine uh, in the last year, year and a half or so. So I, I think that Biden or people around him they have to say certain things to look tough. They have to try to line up NATO to look tough. And you're right that uh, this, this, in a way, is uh, trying to shore up the reason for NATO to continue to exist, um, which, again, I don't think it needs to. It shouldn't. And, you know, people forget there are seven countries, eight, including Russia, that have nuclear weapons in the region. France and Britain have their own. But then the United States has nuclear weapons in five NATO countries. So it, I don't think anybody wants a war. People in Ukraine don't, people in Russia don't, certainly people in Western Europe and the United States don't. But the danger is some kind of miscalculation or escalation that could lead to even more people getting killed. About 14,000 people have been killed in the last eight years, I guess it is, in the fighting uh, you know, in Eastern Ukraine. It, it's not off the table that there could be a mistake that could escalate and lead to at least nuclear threats, if not a nuclear war. And that, that absolutely cannot be allowed to happen. When we think about what uh, the mainstream media in particular has been whipping up, um, do you feel that there is an exaggeration or I should say maybe hypocrisy and double standards being applied to Russia's posturing versus the United States' posturing? Because we see, and we'll get to Afghanistan soon, we'll, we see uh, who has actually invaded countries, kept tr thousands of troops in, fomented mass death, um, and you know, continues to sort of be in denial of of, of what uh, what was done, and and also refuses to take action or offer reparations. We have Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Yemen, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and that's all the United States. 
Well, I think there's a fair amount of projection by the United States as a declining imperial power. And you do have to remember, both the U.S. and Russia are declining powers. Most people in this country might not say that. And there's also a lot of projection towards China, which we could talk about you know, on a different show. Um, which is not to say that Russia and China are, are perfect actors in the world stage. Of course they are not. But the United States, which has been, as Martin Luther King called it, the greatest purveyor of violence in the world and remains so, most nuclear weapons, hugest Pentagon budget, military budget, foreign bases, 800 foreign bases all around the world. Um, so yeah, there, there is a lot of, of projection. And again, I was in Russia, and I don't consider myself a Russian expert, but I was there in 1997, and I loved it. The people were great, the language, the food, the culture, the literature, the art, the architecture, and people in Russia are just like people here. And I met Ukrainians there, too. They don't want a war, and we had a period there where we could have worked with Russia, but of course, you know, there's just so much triumphalism and American exceptionalism, and of course, Russia takes exception to that, as, they, as anyone would. Let's pivot to Afghanistan and this $7 billion in frozen assets that, uh, the, that was basically the Afghan Central Bank's um, that the Biden administration decided it would unfreeze uh, and then decided that it would just, you know, give half to the Afghan people. Of course, the Afghan people being the more the, the, the ultimate sort of deserving group here. And then very randomly offer the other half for victims of the September 11th attacks and the survivors, uh, families of the victims and survivors of the September 11th attacks, where did this come from? Who, you know, it seemed this seemed to come out of nowhere for me, at least. Unfortunately, it didn't come out of nowhere. It's something we've been aware was a possibility or a likelihood for a while now. So, Peace Action and other groups have been very concerned about the humanitarian catastrophe that's unfolding in Afghanistan. You already have a million people that have fled the country, mostly to Iran or Pakistan. You have the, the risk of 20 million people starving. Even before the Taliban took over last September, August, September, uh, there had been a drought for several years. The economy was already in a shambles. So the $7 billion that's in New York banks and is controlled, so quote unquote, by the Federal Reserve is not the Taliban's money. It's not the government's money. It's the Afghan people's money. And while part of what Biden is talking about is humanitarian aid, humanitarian aid is not going to survive, suffice, as, as urgently needed as that is. The, the Afghanistan economy and the Afghan Central Bank, which was built by the United States and developed and trained and modeled on the Federal Reserve of the United States, so we have a lot of input into that, needs the money for liquidity to for banks and for individuals to inject money into the Afghan economy. And that would then lessen the need for humanitarian aid. Right now, government workers, teachers, healthcare workers, et cetera, are not getting paid with horrible results. People are selling their belongings. I've seen, I've seen reports, I think it was in the New York Times, that some people are selling their children. It's horrible. And in terms of the half the money going to 9-11 uh, families, it wasn't Afghanistan, it wasn't the Taliban that attacked the United States on 9-11. Uh, and again, this money is not the government's money, it's not the Taliban's money. So it should all be released to inject badly needed funds into the Afghan economy. And someone that knows way more about this than I do, Dr. Shah Murabi, who's a professor of economics here at Montgomery College, just outside Washington, D.C., has been a member of the Afghan uh, governing board of the Afghan Central Bank 
since 2003. And his proposal is to go ahead and start releasing that money and you could do it a month at a time and monitor it not only by the Afghan Central Bank, which does remain independent of the Taliban, but also international auditing firms still working in Afghanistan to make sure that the money isn't seized by the Taliban. And something that people don't mention, the Taliban, and I'm not an apologist for them, they maybe won't make it as a government. It's possible that they could fail as a government. We understand their military prowess in taking over the country, but people could blame them, possibly correctly, if, the, if, the, if there's a mass starvation. So they actually have some incentive not to steal the money. They have some incentive to show that they can govern and getting money into the Afghan economy would be something that would be in their interest as well. I mean, the U.S., you know, even to the criticism of peace organizations, worked with the Taliban to exit Afghanistan and is now randomly or bizarrely sabotaging their ability to actually govern. Um, you know, again, I mean, both you and I are absolute critics of the Taliban, but also critics of any of U.S. policies that impact the well-being of the Afghan people. Um, you know, I'm wondering if uh, you can also finally tell us a little bit about the org the uh, campaign that your organization uh, launched on Valentine's Day this year as a, a way to counteract our government's brutal policies against Afghans. You call it the Love to Afghanistan campaign? So we did it on Valentine's Day, but there's ongoing actions and we had local actions around the country, literally from Maine to Oregon and many parts in between several dozen actions. And we had other organizations working with us and we had organized this uh, over the last few weeks and the news about this Biden plan only came out Friday. So we had to do a little bit of pivoting in terms of our messaging, et cetera. So there is, without getting into the details of it, and I'm not an international lawyer, there are some uh, difficult to explain aspects of this Biden plan. And we need to do more digging both into the administration's plan, but also allies in Congress. Because again, some people might be attracted to this politically, that, okay, let's do something for 9-11, you know, families, uh, you know, surviving families. And let's I mean, also- Maybe they think it's some sort of like poetic justice, even though, you know, as we've said, it's misplaced because Afghans had nothing to do with. No, go get the money from Saudi Arabia and Egypt and the countries where most of the hijackers came from, go. okay? This is taking money from starving people. And I'm not I'm not saying that the 9-11 families, and of course a lot of 9-11 families actually not even supportive of this this deal, but um, I'm not saying- They didn't the ask for it, right? <laughs> no, and, and I don't, I, 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 I'm not unsympathetic to 9-11 survivors' families somehow getting quote unquote justice, but it shouldn't be from the Afghanistan people's money at a time when people are at the risk of starvation. So it, there are some things about this that are very legalistic and hard to explain. And of course, for groups like ours, we have to try to cut through that and say, look, there's a humanitarian disaster. This $7 billion needs to be injected into the Afghan economy as soon as possible. There are ways to do it with safeguards so that we can be sure the Taliban doesn't to steal the money and line their pockets and it's urgent and needs to be done now to prevent a horrible humanitarian catastrophe this winter so when you come down to it that's really the simple explanation of what has to be done where can people find out more about um the uh love to afghanistan campaign and is there time for them to still enact it in their own uh local organizations 
There is, and of course, we'll be doing follow-up work as well. Peaceaction.org, or also on Facebook, we post uh, updates about this, and we'll keep people uh, up to date on what they can do to act in solidarity, in love with the people of Afghanistan, uh, as well as to help solve other crises like Yemen and Ukraine and nuclear weapons and Pentagon budget. We're uh, very blessed, unfortunately, to be very busy on so many issues of war and peace right now. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate your time. My pleasure, Sonali. I always enjoyed being with you. My guest has been Kevin Martin. He is the president of Peace Action and the Peace Action Education Fund. I'm Sonali Kulhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com, by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RU with Sonali.